All right. Uh, hello and welcome to the second installment of Script to Screen. I am Mercedes. I'm Deanna. And I am Angela. And we are the Ride or Die Chicks. This month, um, this month's script for February was Amelie. The screenplay was by Guillaume Laurent. The story was by Guillaume Laurent and Jean-Pierre Junet. And then it was directed by Jean-Pierre Junet. So, uh, something that I'm not sure if a lot of writers, I'm sure everybody's seen all the different credits, screen by, screenplay by, story by, written by, yada, 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 you know, it gets a little confusing. And so I've decided to just like sit down and actually figure out like, what the heck does all this mean? I don't care if I'm late to the party, never too late. <laughs> so, um, for this specific installment, I'm just going to explain what screenplay by, screenplay by and story by are. So screenplay by um, means it's for the writers who physically wrote drafts or scenes included in the final version of the movie. And story by is anyone who worked on a treatment or outline of the movie. Um, page one rewrites and first uh, writers are also eligible for this credit as well. So it seems as though these two storytellers worked pretty closely with this project in general so I think it was just they worked hard on the story we only wrote it Jean-Pierre um directed it thank so, you no I didn't know that problem. I yeah. didn't know that the, uh, <laughs> the writer's guild actually has a whole guide on it so I did download download that but you can find that on their um their website as well shout That's out to I the WGA it. yes <laughs> Yeah, I honestly, I was like, I don't know what means what. I just know it affects your paycheck mm-hmm. whenever we start getting paychecks. So. Whatever we, one day, one day <laughs> one we'll day look back happens. on this episode and be like, remember, <laughs> it was the year 2020 and <laughs> I'm just going to start off with a little bit of background. I got a general description from Wikipedia and then I kind of like mismatch my own um, little synopsis of what this movie is. So... From Wikipedia, Amelie, also known as The Fabulous Destiny of Amelie Poulain, is a 2001 French romantic comedy film that is a whimsical depiction of contemporary Parisian life set in Montmartre. So, um, the story follows Amelie Poulain, an introverted waitress who orchestrates the lives of the people around her to change them for the better, all while struggling to take the leap out of the comfort zone of her own isolated existence. So, I really loved this script. Just overall, just to kind of get that out of the way, I love the script. <laughs> it was very, it was very whimsical. I do agree. And it was unlike any other script that I've ever read. Yeah. And I will say, I think it's the first um, translated script that I have read. Mm-hmm. Okay, so speaking of that, because I was talking <laughs> to Ange about this before uh, Mercedes got here. So I watched it for the very first time for this conversation. Oh. Me too. And I oh, read it. Wait, how was I the first one? I don't even watch French films. That's weird. <laughs> it's not like it's never mind. It's not like we go out of our way to be like we're gonna ignore French film. That's not a thing. Mm-hmm. I watch but French action. Okay, move on. What I anyways. <laughs> what I wanted to like know is that. So I noticed that in the script, like you said, it, there's it, the whole film is this whimsy, beautiful film but when it's written down it's just as whimsical and there are a lot of rules broken Mm -hmm. but I don't know if like because one of the biggest things I noticed was some of the things on the page like dialogue some of the descriptions 
well, mostly dialogue. I don't know if they match with the, the subtitles. Mm-hmm. So that was my thing. So when it when we get down to talking about, like, the differences, I'm not sure if it was an actual difference or if the subtitle, whoever is in charge of that, just messed up. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I guess there's a bunch of different iterations or ways to kind of translate. So there was a bit of dialogue and stuff that was changed, I noticed, from script to screen. Yeah. But I think it was the the general idea of what they were trying to say got across, I think. Okay. It, it's always going to be a little bit hard for us because... We're not French and we don't speak French. Yeah. <laughs> but is it easier for you as someone who studies French? Um, it was a little bit. I I could get the general gist. I'm still very much a novice French speaker. <laughs> so <laughs> when I eventually, one of my goals is when I eventually become fluent, I would like to read the French um, version of this script and kind of do a cross-reference between that and the English translation. Um, and I'm hoping that as we go along, we can read more translated scripts just to see, because it is something that I'm very curious about to see, like, the style of the script is definitely not what we're used to, or what I'm used to. No, we're not used to it. (laughs) Yeah. So, the thing that I'm wondering is, I was just like, I wonder what other foreign scripts look like, because we don't write like this Mm -hmm. in America. So. I kind of want to start with the farewell and go from there, since that one is kind of an in-between. Uh, oh, and shout out to my Talamasan translation. I will say something. I have watched certain things translated, not translated, but subtitled by different sub subbers, and some of them are they they are more from the stool of exact. Uh, they they use exact translations, which uh, like word for word, and it doesn't always. It's not always the best method. It's like mm-hmm. I understand that that word means that, but somehow it almost feels lost or it doesn't quite feel like how somebody who speaks English would say it. So it, it sometimes it can feel a little weird. And then some, so sometimes they will use an exact translation. Other times they'll use, like say somebody says a phrase in that language, but it's not really a phrase. Uh, it, that phrase wouldn't make sense translated, but they'll use a similar phrase in our language. So it's like, it's literally not what that person said, but you get the gist, like you said earlier. So I've seen different styles, and then I also know sometimes the strips we read are based on the shooting script or something, but that may not be, like, say they changed a line while shooting, and then that's the the scene that ended up in the film. We're reading the script and the lines that were originally supposed to be said, but that may not be what came out in the end. So sometimes that's what doesn't... Uh, translate from script to stream mm-hmm. i've seen that before a lot of times oh yeah oh, wait and speaking of whimsy like i said earlier before you got here it really did uh, remind me of pushing daisies just like it felt like a curtain was opening as i was reading that script because first i was i was like this is not our style because uh-huh. even the sled line was different like from the first moment first moment the first line on the script it felt different and then as it was going i was like this reminds me of like being a story um, a story, a fairy tale being read to me or something. It, had, it was very whimsical. Mm-hmm. And I really liked, uh, that takes us into, now we're going to be focusing on this script. Um, so if we do just a page one breakdown, um, since we all know as writers, the first page of the script is really what's going to make or break the story. That's how you pull your audience in. And I feel like there's no space wasted. Um, even though it's basically all just action paragraphs with the voiceover 
there's the there's the dialogue from the voiceover character, but it's just like kind of dancing in between mm-hmm. um, the action paragraphs, like one playing after the other. So that voiceover character is the first character that we meet. Um, and on the page, it becomes very integral to the story, which is something that I thought was interesting when we finally did watch the movie because it didn't feel as present as it was when I was reading it. Mm-hmm. Did anyone else get that? It oh. definitely, it was more prominent when you were reading it mm-hmm. than it was because I feel like it takes up so much space on the page, right. but then when you watch it, everything happens so quickly. Yeah. Everything that he says. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I, I, so I'm the only one who had it from the opposite direction because you both read the script first and then watched mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. and I'd watched it and read the script first, so it was, it was just felt like a whole new world reading it for some reason because like you said it's more prominent on the page and at first just the format threw me off I was like wait wait what's happening and then I understood I'm like oh okay I get it but it did feel different the way that I kind of interpreted that interpreted (laughs) (laughs) interpreted the the voice of her character it kind of felt like to me it was the writer inserting themselves into the story Mm -hmm. and just telling it directly to us because oftentimes, as writers, you know, you don't really get to be beyond the script unless you're a writer-director. You really don't get to add much more to the finished product. Um, but the voiceover character, in my opinion, was a way for the writer to be like, I'm going to remain present till the end, <laughs> and you're going to hear my voice. Um, and the things that were established on just the first page um, is the seamless interwoven nature of the universe of this story um with all roads leading back to Amelie so you'll notice in the first scenes it's talking about like here's what's happening on this part of the world and here's what's happening at the same time and also at the same time this is happening and also Amelie Mm -hmm. and it the story has a way of doing that a lot and I think that's really interesting because it's setting up the style right away and then also just the important of minute details of everyday life, which I really, really loved because it's all those specific things, especially when it gets into like each person's specific likes and dislikes. I just, I don't know why, but I feel like I also like to stick my hand in, <laughs> in the grain, the grain. And in rice and stuff. Yeah. I feel like everyone does. It's a nice feeling. And it's something no one's ever like come out and said like, I like to do that. <laughs> Well, I think, for me, just going back to how, um, like, he's setting up all, like, the scene and the mundane, whatever, you know, life, (laughs) how they're setting it up. So, especially when they start to introduce, like, the the one poor guy in New York or New Jersey that, where his best friend just died. Oh, yeah. And he scratches him out. So, when we were going through all that and he was introducing, like, just characters like that, I thought they were going to come back around and be, like, part of the story later. Mm -hmm. So I think that was the only time I was like, oh, I thought they were going to meet later, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, and because I'd already watched it, I just, um, I realized they were throwing a bunch of, like, butterfly effect at us. That's what I, th- that's what I felt as I was reading it. It's like, this happened on this side of the, on, of the world, and I thought it was all, like, a ripple effect leading back to her. Mm-hmm. And that's how I was like, because it was like a gnat flapping its wings, the guy blowing the racer sh- shavings eraser whatever mm-hmm. remnants and then I was like I thought it was like I was thinking it's feeling like a breeze or like a gust of wind like just traveling all the way from the beginning all the way back to Amelie like you said all roads lead back to her and I'm sorry side story sand is dirty and salt is dangerous but 
I, my daycare had a, a rice box that we would, instead of a sand box, we couldn't like stand in or anything, but we had, we had a bucket full of rice that we could play in. And so you played in rice. Yes. uh, Grains of rice. (laughs) Yes. So I do have that experience a lot. (laughs) Moving on. Oh, I'm kind of jealous now. I didn't know that was a thing. I, okay. I had a rice box. <laughs> it was fun. I have a box of rice in my pantry right now. Do you want to just you want me stick to get my a hand in it? Stick your hand in. I don't want to eat it after that, but you can buy me a new box. You can wash the rice. No, I want the experience that Ollie had, where she just go to the market and well, just stick her hand right that's in there. Weird. And her, like, because the the grocery guy was right downstairs, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing is, the thing that I really liked about it is just, like, it really does seem like she has the secret to life and she's just keeping it all to herself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's grain. You guys, it's rice. Get you some rice. Your Your life will be better. Moving on to act one as a whole. I, I named this section of the movie The Mystery Box. Mm-hmm. Um, when we finally get to meet other people in the story, the thing that I really thought was interesting was um, there's a lack of traditional character description, at least traditional as we know it as mm-hmm. American writers. Um, so the descriptions given to her parents are really interesting to me because it focuses on the distinct likes and dislikes, um, which play out on the screen in a really funny way, I think. Um, and then it makes the script a bit more dynamic, um, and it takes all the internal guesswork and forces the reader to build a character basing their perception on a description, um, of thought process rather than physicality. So you're going based off of, like, what they think internally instead of what they look like, and then you can just form the picture of what you assume them to look like in your own mind, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, and you know, I tend not to like physical descriptions online, so I like that method. I probably don't know if use that method more often. I know, it's something you could steal that, yeah. if you want to. <laughs> like, I like this. It's like, it's the inside that counts. Why do you care? You don't know who's going to be casted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a very good point. <laughs> you could have, you could put down all the description you want, but I think like we talked about in Sopranos, it really doesn't matter, mm-hmm. because they could cast completely against whatever you wrote. Mm-hmm. Which I think is kind of a load of bunk, especially when there's like characters like the ones that you create in your scripts. You're very, very specific, even with the characters that really aren't like they're they're below second tier. Just my minor characters you even have specific mm-hmm. details for, which I think is really interesting. But at the end of the day, it's just like oh, once you put your script in other people's hands, you have no idea or control. <laughs> so there is also the use of dialogue for the characters. Um, to kind of paint their description as well. So the first time that we meet the concierge, she doesn't really <laughs> get a description, a character description. No. You just get, you get a description of her apartment, and other than that, it's just the way that she talks. Mm-hmm. And what I put down was that, in my mind, when I was reading it, she kind of seemed like, she would look like Don French to me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I just see Don French in this role. <laughs> um, a glass of wine in one hand and gossip just ready to flow and she's still kind of bitter about stuff. She's just ready to spill tea all, at all times. That's how I felt. And she's still kind of sad. She was such a sad character. <laughs> I remember so she came sad. on the screen too and just seeing it acted out and everything. I was like, fuck. 
poor thing. Which is why when when everything turns around, I mean, it was a, it was bad to lie to her. But I'm right. like, you know what? Given the opportunity, I probably would have done the same thing. In this script in particular, I made note that I thought that Kuyame took a lot of liberties with pre-direction, mm-hmm. which I think might have been something that he could afford to do, considering he was he came up with the concept with the director. But he has a very distinct vision throughout that I think really pours onto the screen because it does feel very intertwined with the script, which most things should, but I feel like it doesn't, his voice isn't lost from script to screen. Mm -hmm. It still feels very much like this writer's vision is here. It's also the directors and the crews and everything like that, but I think the translation really went over well. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because of the details that he insisted on putting in just to make it so, like, this is still very much his baby, too. One of my favorite examples is described in the first action paragraph. That's scene 53 in the street. Um, Amelie has just stolen Mr. Collignon's uh, apartment keys, and the reader is told that will be shown inside her pocket, and like, as an x-ray. So we see her fingers feverishly playing with the keys, which is, it didn't exactly translate on the screen like that, but we still got that visual. Mm-hmm. And it was something that, like, I think it shows readers and writers that they don't have to be so intricate with that type of description if they have a specific idea in their mind. If they want that sort of special effect, all you have to do is say, as an x-ray, because people will get it. I think something that a lot of American writers tend to do is either they leave it up to the director or they get too intricate to the fact where it's like, okay, well, now we have to factor in cost. You're making people think about it too much. But if you just say kind of offhand, as an x-ray, people will figure out how to make that work. Mm-hmm. And when it, I... Oh, sorry. Would you like to go? <laughs> oh, no. It's just like when I saw that, it, I already visualized it because they do the same thing in Cinderella when the, the stepmother puts the key in her pocket. And I was like, I'm in her pocket. I understand. And I was like, yes, I've been in people's pockets before. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> well... I mean, it just goes back to that, whatever you put on the page, make it as simple as possible. So whatever you're trying to describe, describe it as simply as possible. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. even though in your mind you you envision this really complicated, detailed scene, on the page, don't make it that complicated. Make mm-hmm. it easy for people to just get the idea and then move on. Yeah, because when you overcomplicate things, you're just giving people reasons to make up excuses to not do it. Right. Like, we can't afford that. Yeah. Like, you can afford some x-ray <laughs> special effect. <laughs> but overall, even just judging off of the first act, I could tell that this was a very visual script, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of description without description, which is, I just think this script is so magical, because I'm like, I don't know how this writer did this, but I will try to emulate that as best I can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like he didn't have to do the dis- the description section because somebody already did it for him the voiceover already said it for him it's like yes what he said it's mm-hmm. like and, and continue and I, that's why I was confused when I first I was like what is this format I don't understand what's happening but I I understand completely what's happening in the story so I think we've seen so many times a really bad way to use like a narrator uh-huh. and this was an example of just really utilizing them and them only adding to the film as as far as like not doing too much yeah. narration because there's a lot of narration but it fits with the film 
Yeah. It works. Yeah. And it does, I think that's really interesting what you brought up, Ange, is that it does kind of feel like it's taking the place of the action paragraph, Mm -hmm. because in those examples that we've seen, like, narration not really used to its fullest potential is where, like, you have the narrator, but then the action scene is just saying, like, describing again what the narrator has already said. Mm -hmm. This writer totally trimmed the fat by just saying, like, if I write this out as as the voiceover says it, they're going to know obviously we want to see that so (laughs) i just thought that was really cool okay act two which i called amelie lost in the love forest (laughs) so descriptive (laughs) thank you thank you i just like coming up with things like that (laughs) she's a writer people i'm a writer (laughs) that's one of my most favorite things to say quick aside (laughs) i need to say that all the time most recently I can't even remember exactly where I was but I was somewhere with Jay and I had come up with oh we were at a baby shower and they had this as one of the party games you got this um this letter to write to the new parents and then at the bottom it's um it's basically fill in the blank and at the bottom you put in a paragraph like oh advice to the new parents oh no oh no (laughs) I was like being someone in their 20s who does not have a baby, let me tell you everything I know. <laughs> but I just, I wrote out of just like, oh, just try to remember that you're you're going to be really frustrated with each other, but it's not because you're mad at each other, it's because you're tired. But I said it a lot more eloquently than that. And everybody at the table's <laughs> like, wow, that was really good. And I'm like, I'm a writer. Oh my God. And Jay was like, I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> No, but I've gotten a card from you. I understand. I was like, oh, girl, whoa, this is a, this, I was like, this is some fine print. Okay, let's go. I try to go to town on cards. Yeah. <laughs> and I just write big, and then I realize I'm running out of space and get smaller as I go. Yeah. It all works right. out in Everybody the end. Everybody has their own style, and <laughs> But I love as, that card. As a writer, I can say that. As a writer, <laughs> that this script was chosen for February is because it is a, um, I guess technically a rom-com. Mm-hmm. It just, it doesn't, it's, it's it doesn't lot. feel like a traditional Western rom-com. Uh-huh. I feel like we focus so much on her kind of developing um, as a person on her own right. before we even meet him. Yeah. And then after we meet him, it still takes a little while for that story to really take off. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. I still liked it, and it is very much a romance in that mm-hmm. way, but I feel like somehow the script really focused all on her. So maybe we could call it a com-rom. A com-rom? Because <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. com dash rom yeah like the rom is after i feel like that's more accurate to this story mm-hmm. yeah oh oh and yes i know by american we mean usa we do understand that we share the continent with other countries and that there's multiple i share nothing <laughs> <laughs> i just realized well, I, got I mean like west, the western way that you write scripts that we were taught in school mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. for us at least yeah that's what we're talking about okay so um i have noticed and correct me if you guys think differently, but when I was reading through it, it felt like there were kind of two meet cutes. There was meet cute part one and meet two part two. Mm-hmm. The sequel. <laughs> the sequel. So um, we first meet uh, Nino in scene twenty six uh, at the metro station. So we that's where we were transported back to his childhood and shown a montage of his upbringing. And it to me that was supposed to show like. Not exactly a, a juxtaposition, but a comparison to kind of show that 
the stars were aligned for him and Amelie from the beginning, even if it took them all the way up to this point to figure it out. And I think that specifically also helped to perpetuate the psychological, the psychological atmosphere of the story. Because it does really feel like it's all focusing on internal Mm -hmm. um, discovery and progression throughout the whole script, I think. It's very psychological straight. (laughs) And then Meet Cute Part 2, the sequel, is (laughs) all the way in scene 43, which is at the train station, Gare du Nord. This scene forces the prior encounter of our soulmates to evolve into a call to action because this is where... Initially, when Amelie sees him, um, she just sees him and she stares at him like a freaking weirdo. <laughs> that was really And then odd. he walks yeah. past her. But then, this next time around, there's that weird chase. Very weird chase. It was weird on the screen. <laughs> on the page. Of the bald man, it yes. it was weird on the screen. I'm like, why are these people running? <laughs> I'm like, are we, are we getting in this, like... Because I hadn't seen the movie, so I'm like, is he a, a spy? Like, what's... <laughs> yeah. To be honest, when the big reveal came, I was like, what did we find out about him? <laughs> I was In my mind, I was already creating who he was. I'm like, so he's like an actor and he can't afford real headshots and this is what he's doing, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I was trying to re-remember what the definition of for theater of the absurd was. I was mm-hmm. like, this, this feels like, yeah, okay. I'll, yeah. <laughs> So we have that weird chase. <laughs> we have that weird chase scene, which was weird on the page and on the screen, I will be honest. But what it forces Amelie to do when he drops a saddlebag, which I think is kind of like playing off of her development in the, the first act, because now she's got this mystery. She has no idea who this person is. She just knows that she has his stuff. And it's just like, she now has the confidence from the first act because she was able to locate the owner of the mystery box. Now she's like, oh, I could totally do this. I've done it before. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, Can you kind of describe um, why the chase scene is so awkward on the page for our listeners? So scene 43, interior day, Gare du Nord uh, train station. It's Dawn at the Gare du Nord with the garden gnome hidden under her coat, which was another... There's so many (laughs) side stories in this movie <laughs> that was actually my favorite one the no it's really sweet but like why was the dad totally cool with it he didn't even he was like look at this picture i got my well, gnome is in is in russia i don't know how they got there but look at this it seemed like it was like on the page it seemed like he was more casual about it than it was on the screen on the screen he seemed like slightly unsettled but he's like i'm not <laughs> even gonna i'm not didn't even care. worry about it I don't even care. The first one was jarring. The second one was just like, you know what? This We're just going to go with this. I'm just going to ride the wave. <laughs> He's like, I'm just going to put him up. One day he'll come back. One day he'll come back. <laughs> One day he'll return. Um, okay. So, with the garden gnome hidden under her coat, an exhausted Amelie gets off the train and joins the first of the, suburban- the suburbanites heading to work. Suddenly, she stops in her tracks. Near a photo booth, the boy she saw in the metro station with the old posters, Nino Kinkampwa, is busy picking up pick bits of paper from the bottom of a rubbish bin and putting them in an envelope. Amelie approaches and watches him attentively. She's intrigued and flustered. Suddenly, he looks up at her and freezes, fascinated. Amelie's heart races. Nina rushes to her. Amelie is mesmerized, immobile, but he goes past her without a glance and runs after a man leaving the station. 
Amelie shakes herself out of the trance and runs after both of them. The man, completely oblivious to all this, climbs calmly into his car and drives off. Here's something I won't He know. was not it calm. Not calm. <laughs> it looks like he's running away. It looks like he knows he's being yeah. followed. He's like, I gotta get out of here. He's like, I'm I don't know who that around. guy is. But. I just get a sense. Somebody is following me and somebody is following them. No normal person. He, like, basically books it up some stairs. He does. <laughs> But I think that's to be deceptive to the audience, right? As a viewer, like, you assume he knows he's active. Maybe. I don't know. Which I think is weird. That's that's interesting to note. I, that transition from script to screen is just like, dude was nervous. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing calm about his demeanor. But I think, so if it were what you're saying, Ash, mm-hmm. like what you're describing, I feel like something would have been notated in like on the page like yeah, they would have it just wouldn't have seemed like he calmly walked got to his car like you but know it's, but it's always like you know how when we would write uh scripts in class we would want to be there to be some suspense and to save things up for a big reveal later she's like no you have to tell us on the page what is going on and i'm like but do i have to mm-hmm. she's like yeah it's the script you they'll figure it out once you they it goes to the screen but it's like no on the script you have to tell us you don't get to be mysterious like that. Well, this script was so mysterious <clears throat> because for half of the script, I didn't even know why the garden gnome was missing. Yeah. I completely missed. <laughs> I completely <laughs> missed <laughs> when her. <laughs> I remember reading that her friend was in a flight attendant, but I I don't know how I missed that. Amelie gave the garden gnome you know that what? specific reason. It took me a while too. Don't even. Where the heck is this? How is the garden gnome? I'm like Amelie is not traveling in between these like everything that's happening. Who has the gnome? And then I was like, wait. I saw the cat in one of the scenes, and I was like, mm, mm, got it. Yeah, it's a light attendant. It's the same with this guy. I think this was a great mystery because I was like, who is he? But I think it's so funny, too, how we're saying, like, on the pages, like, he calmly gets to his car. And then it was so just chaotic on the mm-hmm. screen because it's the same director and writer. Yeah. Like, they're the same people. So I thought that was that was really interesting to see. I wonder I, what why he made that choice when he was translating it. I do wonder. You know what it reminded me of? It's like, you know when you're, you work late or something, and you're getting back to the parking structure, and it's dark outside, and you yeah, get you're paranoid, like, and you're like, let me just walk fast to my car, even if there's nobody behind me, I'm not going to give anybody the Except, chance. here's the thing, this guy was tall, he was not a small man, and it was the middle of the day. <laughs> what like, is he afraid of? Power Who are you running car? from, sir? His, his spidey senses told him he was about to be murdered, and he ran. He's all, nope. Not today. Not today. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. And here's another detail I missed, because the next thing is, the man completely oblivious to all this climbs calmly into his car and drives off. We have just enough time to see that he's wearing red trainers, tennis shoes, Yes. which have a white star on them. Nino rushes to his Solect moped, moped. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> Nino rushes to his Solex moped and dashes off in pursuit. Amelie looks on, dumbfounded. In his haste, he bumps into a taxi and loses a saddlebag before disappearing over the horizon. Amelie goes up and picks up goes and picks up the bag. So, on the page, you could tell where Amelie and Nino's energy was at, and I think it does translate over. It's just the guy with the the tennis shoes. I'm just like it was. Something was like no, no. We need more. Yeah, just realized like Nino's running too fast, but we don't have enough time to do this shot over. Just move faster, move faster. (laughs) (laughs) 
but stay calm, leave your arms by your side, even though no one walks that way. <laughs> yeah, but so that, that scene in itself, it felt very weird, just because of, like, we have these two mysteries, we're like, well, who's this guy, and why is he chasing that guy, and why is Amelie, why is her initial reaction to be like, I have to chase both of them? <laughs> Girl, you and choose. then especially like he he's not looking at her that's the thing mm-hmm. he gets up and it's one of those embarrassing moments like if you're waving at someone because you think they're waving to you and they're waving at the person behind you that's really embarrassing yeah. so the fact that she like she she wasn't embarrassed and she was like intrigued mm-hmm. <laughs> it just says a lot about her character because i was yeah. like and we're noping out of here yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. i'm like well that was embarrassing i have to leave like i can never come back to this train station <laughs> So now she's got that going on, but in the midst of all of her her little, like, side plots where she's setting up all this stuff, she's also doing a little bit of romance. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's what I just wanted to say. This movie was actually quite sexual. Yes. Right? Oh, my God. I wasn't expecting that at all. It was French, so I assumed. <laughs> Except this, the acting one. Mm, no, the, mm, I don't know. Move on. <laughs> I just wasn't expecting some of this stuff. And some of it, it, the weird part about it is that everybody seems so, like, innocent in the shots, and it's kind of filmed in a way that doesn't make sex super taboo, yeah. even though Nino works in a straight-up, is it a strip club, is it a go-go dance? It's, a, it's, a, porn, some, um, a, it's a porn palace. A porn palace. It's a porn palace. But you don't feel weird. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, he's like, I'm gonna, he's just like talking to her, and she's like, what? <laughs> Can you cover my shift? And I'm like, I guess people do have those types of conversations, well, I no matter like where you, you have work. To, like, if you've worked in a place like that for so long, you're just mm-hmm. used to it. Like, it's part of your everyday life. It's just yeah. like, just being yeah. a dancer, like, you're used to random pe- naked people going past you and you get a little desensitized to it. You're like, yep, yeah, they're they're about to go back on stage. They have to change their clothes in two seconds, so, mm-hmm. yeah. The scene in particular is, like, the only true sex scene in the in the whole movie. I thought it was a really interesting way to write sex. Which so, one? Uh, scene 72, Interior Day 2 from You. It's when, um... <laughs> oh. <laughs> the Georgette and Joseph in the bathroom... The toxic man in the bathroom. I know. I'm just like, <laughs> I don't understand. I mean, I guess I could see what Amelie's character was trying to do, but it's just like, that guy is just beyond repair. We should have just got rid of Joseph. Like, <laughs> he's just beyond repair. He's trash. I would have called out. the police when I saw that he was, he's stalking he's his stalking, ex-girlfriend. Yeah. He's just sitting there, just ruining her time at work. And then it switches to the, he's stalking her and Georgette, like... What a nightmare! That's awful. <laughs> I and then Susan, that's her, the owner's name, right? Mm-hmm. Susan. She doesn't kick him out or anything. I would have, like, I just wanted her to like hit him with a like broom and like, kick him out. Any business is good business. I guess. <laughs> it's just like that's not true in this scenario. Not at all. Whose side are you on, Susan? <laughs> <laughs> um, but so just to give some context, uh, Amelie is trying to kind of reshape the lives of the people around her to kind of bring more love and happiness to them. And she's noticed there's this really weird character named Georgette um, who just feels like she's sick from everything. (laughs) And so she decides she's going to try and loosen Georgette up by setting her up and helping her friend in the process, um, her other friend in the process, by getting her ex, crazy ex, off of her back and setting Georgette and Joseph up. So, um, this scene 
kind of is where like Amelie's hard work seemingly comes to a head, but then it all goes downhill from here. <laughs> um, so I'm going to find the scene. It is scene 72, interior day, Tut the mule. I'm going to read through the scene. Yeah. Okay. At the cafe, Amelie notices Joseph at the counter of the cigarette stand, scratching another scratch and win. Do you want to play George? Oh my gosh, <laughs> let's do it. Okay, I'll be Joseph. <clears throat> Still nothing. Still nothing. Joseph notices a bit of wool caught in the clasp of Georgette's chain. You have something there. Don't move. May I? He reaches out slowly. His fingers brush Georgette's neck, and she blushes like a poppy. You're beautiful when you blush, Georgette. You look like a flower in the field. It's, it's, it's just wind. They freeze. Just then, a customer comes in. Hello, everyone. God, it's beautiful out. The spell is broken. Joseph, red as a beetroot, scurries towards the toilets. In the toilets. Turning on the cold water, Joseph splashes his face. In the bar. Amelie has seen all this. Grabbing her tray, she makes a beeline for the cigarette stand. Amelie. Camel filters. Oops. She has tipped her tray over a bit too much, and coffee is now dripping on Georgette's knees. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. Oh, well done. Do excuse me. I'll be right back. Muttering all the way, she heads to the toilets as well. In the toilets, Georgette finds herself nose-to-nose -nose with Joseph, who was on his way back out. The door shuts behind him, startling both of them. They stare at each other mumbling unintelligibly. Then, suddenly, Georgette throws herself at Joseph and pins him to the wall. In the bar at the counter, Amelie, one eye on the toilet door, distractedly dries the glasses. Suddenly, a teaspoon starts to tap rhythmically against the edge of a cup. Amelie, dumbfounded, stares at it. She then notices that the liquid in all the bottles is rippling gently at regular intervals. The yolk of a fried egg on a grilled cheese is swaying slightly. Over the counter, a neon sign starts to hiss. And all of this in the same regular rhythm. Suddenly, from the other side of the door, a moan can be heard. The customer and Suzanne look around. Amelie, thrilled, diverts attention by making the percolator whistle like a locomotive. <laughs> <laughs> and scene. And scene. I'm so happy I was too far away to read that, because this was fun to watch. <laughs> Did you, I just try to do different voices. I don't know if that came out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it's just, the whole scene, first of all, I just thought it was really weird, because it says that Joseph touches her neck. It looks like he, like, touch her, touches her boob yeah. in that scene. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know about that. I think okay. that was, I think that might have been just, like, an issue with shooting because on the page you could easily imagine, like, oh, mm -hmm. it's, they could figure out a way to make this happen. Yeah. But when they're shooting, it was probably different. It's just like, oh, we don't really have a way to connect mm -hmm. the <laughs> necklace to her shirt and make it look like it's snagging. Yeah. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> But it does look kind of weird because I'm like, he's not brushing away anything. So he's literally just touching her chest. Because you couldn't see her necklace in that shot. Yeah. I couldn't even tell if she was wearing anything. Yeah. <laughs> That's like every time I'm watching something and they're saying somebody's blushing, I'm like, are they? I can't see anything. Makeup, makeup, we need makeup. I see no blushing. <laughs> but I thought overall the nuance was so clever in the scene because you could tell there's tension building all the way up to when they disappear into the bathrooms and then for Amelie to just be the one noticing like what's Everything going on moving. here yes. Everything's moving. 
I don't know how I'd react if I was like, are they having sex in there? It was, so when that started happening, I don't know why my mind immediately went to, oh, a disaster's about to happen because of, like, her neighbor and everything in the beginning. So I was like, is there an earthquake? Like, what's happening? And then slowly as she was realizing, I was realizing with her, and I was like, oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. But as Californians, we always think earthquake first. We're like, wait, wait, are there earthquakes We're so first? traumatized. <laughs> oh my gosh. But I thought that was a really good example of a scene that translates really well and super easily onto the screen, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was just an interesting way to write sex because you didn't have to be over-sexualized. You didn't have to show anything. It could still be relatively PG-13, but you also get the cheekiness of it. It's just like, hmm. Amelie's <laughs> like, I did that. <laughs> so beyond that, I have um, a few general notes moving on to the third act final act which i did not title <laughs> wow and you're right i know and you didn't title it wow. i didn't title the third act but i would probably if i were to title it now off the dome i would have to say it would be something like can you tell i'm selling yeah. <laughs> when you said off the dome i know i was like you really said off the dome i got so distracted <laughs> because i was thinking of like off the rim playing basketball or off the backboard i'm like off the dome i'm what like who that? says that we say off the dome um people say <laughs> that who who we say rappers <laughs> <laughs> the mean, original poets <laughs> The last leg of the script is mostly just about, like, bringing Nino and Amelie together, but really it's about Amelie trying to find the courage to bring herself to Nino and just get over her her fear (laughs) of human connection, which I think is a really big theme across this, this script itself, is, like, she's so, she's so down to make other people feel connected but she oftentimes will forget about her own lack of connection with people. I think she's a Capricorn. You think she's a Capricorn? Yeah, because that's what that's what we do. We're like we focus on other people's problems so we don't have to deal with ours. You know what? I guess that makes sense. I didn't even think about that. Astrology one oh one people. No <laughs> I did not. Oh wait, no, but we know her birthday, don't we? Do we know her Oh yes, yes, we do know her birthday. We should look up her sign. Okay, hold on. When was she born? It tells us on the very first page. Maybe she's yeah. not a Capricorn. But she has tendencies. I need her birth chart. It's <laughs> September 1975. Hmm. The 3rd of September, 1975. What is that? Is that um September? Uh, you can I have Google. to go back from... Huh? Oh. Google. Yeah, I guess I could. We're going to look it up, you all. <laughs> Did you notice how I said you all instead of y'all? What? Uh, Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> like, I want to spell y'all without the apostrophe, but my, my, my autocorrect won't let me. Third Florida man? I'm sorry. I'm going to have to look that up later. <laughs> what? Virgo! Oh, Virgo! Amelie's a Virgo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. okay. I guess that's really interesting, building her character off of Virgo, because Virgos are also very hard workers, but they are pretty meticulous. So she does stay true to her Zodiac. She does. Because she does pay attention to those specific details, and it is hard for her to, like, I guess, focus on personal interactions, unless they're professional, Mm -hmm. or helping other people. Interesting. Okay, so, um, as writers, we all know the saying, show, not tell. 
Um, which is something that we've touched on a little bit earlier, how the voiceover kind of takes on the action paragraphs and makes it kind of like a dual thing that's happening. Um, one of the things that I thought was really, one of the scenes that I thought was really interesting was when we have the big reveal of who the guy is in the red trainers. <laughs> scene 96. <laughs> you said that so angrily. I was like, drama. <laughs> so, scene 96, exterior and interior, street and train station cor- concourse. This is where we really get the big reveal of like, what the heck has Nino been following this guy around for who is he mm-hmm. and so um i will read this the scene to you now voiceover 15 minutes later at 22 boulevard strasbourg amelie enters a costume shop at the same moment at 108 rue de martis a man leaves his house we only see his feet the man is wearing red trainers decorated with a white star we recognize the man that Nino chased through the concourse of the Gare du Nord. At 10.15, Amelie is on the escalator at the Harvard-Carmartin metro station. She can't help staring enviously at the children running up and down the escalator. Meanwhile, in Rue de Petit Champ, the man in red trainers at the wheel of his Citroën G7 van is braking rhythmically so as to get a better look at the blonde at the, at the wheel behind him. The sky is black and stormy. The red brake lights shine on the female driver. We only see the man's eyes in the rearview mirror. Eighteen minutes later, Amelie arrives at the photo booth at the Gare de l'Est. We see her spinning the stool at top speed to adjust the height. At the same time, at the same second, the man with red trainers parallel parks perfectly in front of the station, disturbing two sparrows taking their bath in the gutter. Lightning rips open the sky. It is exactly 37 minutes past 10. Amelie's hand slides coins into the machine slot. The double doors of the station concourse open. The trainers with the white star appear. A flash illuminates Amelie, decked out in a Zorro mask. The man's feet approach the photo booth. The image goes in slow motion. Amelie takes off her mask, grabs the curtain of the booth with both hands. She opens them. The curtain rings clink. Amelie freezes, mouth agape. Lightning illuminates the sky. Thunder roars. It's as if the Guerre de l'Est is, has been struck by lightning. We recognize the man with the red trainers. It's the mystery man whose picture keeps on coming back in Nino's album. Amelie looks, over, looks him over from head to toe, and a smile lights up her face. At this precise moment in the story, Amelie is the only one to know the solution to the mystery of the unknown man of the photo booths. So, as I was reading it, I didn't say voiceover when it was voiceover, but if you didn't know, if you weren't looking at the screen, mm-hmm. or at the script itself, you wouldn't know which was which. Yeah, it, it sounded like a lot of pre-direction, like you said. Yes. Yeah. So I just think this is a really great example. This scene in particular is a really great example of how it's using show, not tell, but it's show while tell. Because it's telling us exactly what we're seeing. And you only get these little minute details that you couldn't exactly say through voiceover in action paragraphs, but the whole scene is just voiceover. Mm-hmm. An action paragraph and voiceover and action paragraph. But I think it was really interesting to note, and it's kind of the big reveal, but this was also just like, in this moment, I was like, wait a minute, who is he? <laughs> I felt like I was listening to an audio drama, or maybe a book on tape, huh. more so, because it's 
when when it's only one person doing the characters and reading, mm-hmm. it's like they'll just switch their voice depending on how they're doing it. It's like, I'm speaking as a character, I'm speaking as a narrator, I'm speaking as this, and stuff like that. And that's what it, that's almost what that felt like on the page. Mm-hmm. It's like it's all interwoven like that. But yeah. Which I really loved. <laughs> I really loved. I feel like the, another great example of that was a little bit later on, scene 106, Into Your Day 2 From You, and it's basically just when the narrator is coming up with those fake scenarios as to why Nino might be late to showing up <laughs> to meet <laughs> to meet Amelie. Okay, do you want to be Georgette again? <coughs> okay. So, scene 106, Into Your Day 2 From You. Suzanne and Amelie are busy behind the counter. Amelie, nervous, looks at the clock anxiously. It's 410. Gina serves customers. Joseph, at his usual place, is in a bad mood. He's still got his dictaphone and is making a sotto voce commentary. What's wrong with him? He thinks I smile too much. He'd prefer you scowl? With men? Yes. 411, according to the clock. Amelie is more and more nervous. Voiceover. Nino is late. For Amelie, there is only three possible explanations. First, he hasn't found the photo yet. We see the wind scattering the debris amidst the dust. Second, he found it but couldn't put it back together again. We see Nino pulling his hair out. Third, he didn't have time to finish putting it back together because three blokes with ski masks came out of a bank just as he was going past and grabbed him as a hostage. Once the cops were off their tracks, they threw him out of the car. He rolled to the side of the motorway and his head hit the crash barrier. When he came to, he couldn't remember anything. An ex-con lorry driver picked him up and, thinking that he was on the run, hid him in a container bound for Istanbul. Getting off of the cargo ship, he fell in with a bunch of Estonian adventurers who offered to take him with them to steal Soviet warheads. But their truck hit a mine in Chechnya, and he was the only survivor of the blast. And, since he has been taken in by a village of mountain people, Amelie really doesn't see why she's getting so getting into such a state for a guy who's going to spend the rest of his life eating borscht with a stupid flower pot on his head. <laughs> Like every kid that's like waiting at school for their parent that forgot to pick them up. It's like, what happened? What could have happened? But I really loved that. I feel like that was probably my favorite line of dialogue from this voiceover character. We see the whole adventure very rapidly. Suddenly, Amelie's face lights up. Nino pops up all of a sudden, completely out of breath. He sits down at the terrace and looks around, staring at passersby. A beautiful girl comes toward him. Nino freezes, but she goes past him. A very tardy girl approaches him. Nino is terrorized, but all she wants is a chair. He starts breathing again. Not for one second does he suspect that. Behind the counter, someone is eating her up, eating him up with her eyes. Amelie is hanging on his every move. Twice, he almost spills his coffee. Amelie finds his clumsiness incredibly moving. Almost as much as the up and down of his Adam's apple when he swallows. Flustered, she washes the glass, wipes it, and immediately puts it back in the dirty dishwasher. Amelie examines Nino, his hands, his eyes, his clothes. That little stain on his collar, that shirt button hanging by its thread. She'd be so happy to fix those little things. I'm going to cut it there. But I think this scene is really interesting, but I will say this. This is where it starts to feel like the script gets a little bit lost in prose because if you notice a lot of these details these minute details are taken out of the actual Mm -hmm. movie so 
I think this is another good example of why it's in- it it's important and it's also kind of fun to read the script and then watch the movie and see the differences because the script on its own could probably sell as a printed book mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's something to think about as writers because you know you you're writing a screenplay, yes, or you're writing a script for television. But the way that you write can also be perceived as some, like, someone could just read this just because without having seen the movie. So that's something I like to consider going through these things. My last major note about the script itself is the special effects sequences, which we kind of went over a little bit before, like, especially as in, like, as in X-ray with the keys. But I've noticed, like, later on through the script, they have those moments, like, when... Um, Mr. Cohen Young, out of embarrassment, explodes mm-hmm. when Amelie has that <laughs> that moment where she has the perfect comeback, or what after this scene when she completely melts down like water because she thinks that she's ruined her own chance with Nino, and all they've done the the writer explains what he wants to see and then he just puts specialist <laughs> effect in parentheses. Super simple, and it works. Mm-hmm. You don't have to get all crazy with it. Overall. What did you guys think? Did you like it? Of the movie as a whole? Of the... Uh, I guess the movie and the, just the story in general. Well, I think I think I liked reading it more than I liked watching it, which is really weird. Mm-hmm. But I just, like, I really liked how it was written and how whimsy it is and how easy it is to read. And the movie, I... Like I said, I just don't like that it's called a rom-com. Because mm-hmm. I feel like it's more... Like, it's more about her. Yeah, I did. It was a really fun read, so I enjoyed reading it, and I it was just it so much was happening on the page that I think I was more engaged uh, reading it. But like I said, I I'd, I'd watched it before, so there was I had a distance from the film while reading it, and I just I really enjoyed reading it this time around. And where I w- did not know what to expect while watching it on on the screen, I still did enjoy the movie, of course, but. Reading it was just a very fun experience, so I think I enjoyed reading it more. One question story-wise, story-wise that I have is that I feel like this movie could be, could have been made in any time period. Mm-hmm. Like, it could have been set today, it could have been set in the past, but what I'm wondering is why they chose to do it in the 90s right when Princess Di died. Because Princess Di is mentioned so much in the, like in the script and in the movie. Yeah, I didn't understand it's, that It's kind either. of odd. Yeah. You would think that it would have affected more people. The only person that it seemed to affect was the Mr. Cullen Young's um, storefront. Yeah. Yeah, his, yeah. But I just think that, I think that's kind of the hallmark of a good story sometimes, when you can set it in any, any time mm-hmm. period. So I like, I really like that about the film. I just really want to know why. Yeah. Why they chose, like, the 90s. Yeah, that is strange. Yeah. I do not know. But that is a good point. Because I had completely forgotten about that. That's the thing about this movie, too. There's so many subplots. So many subplots. There's a lot. There's a lot. (laughs) But again, it's the same thing as, like, with the Sopranos script. There's a lot of subplots. There's a lot happening, but it doesn't feel busy. I agree with you guys 100%. I do really feel like I liked reading this a bit more than I liked watching it. Mm-hmm. And I think for me it's a little bit different because I'm like reading this I had such a distinct vision in my mind and then seeing the movie I'm like yeah, it's good. But it's <laughs> <not>. <laughs> I think that says a lot like about the them as writers though. Uh-huh. Like it was it was so well written that even like you like 
the script more than you like the movie. I think that's yeah. like a lot about your writing. Yeah. Because even though they did change stuff on the screen, it's still good. But all the original stuff is pretty great. I kind of want to know yeah. who translated it. Like, wh- was it the writer? I think that would be really interesting. Yeah. I feel like this script was translated in a way that we felt everything. Mm-hmm. And hopefully the way we should have. Because I, I doubt it was a, a translation issue as to why the man was not so calm. It's <laughs> 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 like, I doubt they, like, dropped a word. They're like, no, he calmly walks. I was like, are you sure? Are you sure mm-hmm. that's what it says? I really liked it. You heard it here first, people. Read the script. <laughs> and then watch the movie if you want to. <laughs> but it's interesting to think, too. Could you imagine this movie being directed by anyone else? Because if I were to pick another director to put hands on this script, I would say Wes Anderson. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They have similar styles. Who yeah. Did, who yeah. did Pushing Daisies? That's a TV show. That's multiple That's a directors. Show. <laughs> <laughs> like, which episode, Angie? <laughs> So, uh, I think that concludes this episode of Script the Screen. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next month. Our Script of the Month for March is going to be the pilot episode to Twin Peaks. The original. The original. (laughs) (laughs) So, read along with us, and we will talk to you again. This is Mercedes. And Deanna. And Angela. And Radadad Chicks out. (laughs) <laughs> Bye.